Revelation 1. We're going to read again verses 4 through 19. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, and to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island of, called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnish, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, that those are, that are, and those that are to take place after this. Oh, Father, we pray for a blessing upon this word and upon this lesson. There is much here. Let us take what we can handle today and use it for your glory. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. Last week, you may recall, we looked at the first part of this text, the ruler and the rulers. The ruler, Christ himself, being the king over all the nations, and we as his faithful, his kingdom, for lack of a better word, rule with him, even now. The word of God which we proclaim, which we profess, is the final last word for what is right and wrong and true in this world. 
and it is our responsibility to proclaim that. And there have been a lot of questions these days, as kind of similar to what we were talking about in the morning study hour uh, about 2 Corinthians. Paul was being accused of not having the spirit or the anointing of God upon his ministry because nobody liked him. Everyone wanted to stone him. They wanted to resist him. They did not want to listen to him. But going back to our Lord's first sermon, and even as he told his own disciples repeatedly, blessed are the peacemakers, us, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they give light to a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the Lord's call to every believer. He was telling them, you're going to preach the truth. You're going to live faithfully for me, and the world is not going to like you for it. It's not very fun to think about because we want to be accepted. We, most people, don't like rejection. And the Lord says, deal with it. He is the ruler, we are the rulers, and in this ruling, we are proclaiming God's truth and his coming judgment and calling people to repentance. We are administrating the authority of his word. That is how we are to rule as a church, as his kingdom. But this morning we want to focus quickly on four things. His return and vindication, the secretary has chosen, the author of the seven letters, and the only reasonable response. Four things, his return and vindication. Whose return? Well, of course, the Lord's return. We do know that he is coming back. And in our text, verse 7, John declares, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. There's been a confusing teaching of the last 200 years drawing out of Scripture, I believe, incorrectly. And you can disagree with me if you want to. This part of knowing Scripture is not has anything to do with your salvation. But I'm just trying to answer the questions and kind of reasonably settle some confusion that had been prevalent in Christianity because I remember I grew up in the camp 
that believed in the rapture. When my mother found out that I no longer believed in the rapture, it only broke her heart. But she knows better now, by now because she's with her Lord. Jesus will come again. He's only going to come one more time. And again, I said, you may disagree with me. I, I will not be offended. But just hear me out as we look through this. There's this idea that there is going to be a secret rapture. That means the Lord's going to come. He's not going to come all the way to the earth. He's going to come in the clouds and call his church up. The graves of the believers will open, and they, the dead in Christ shall rise first, as he says in Thessalonians. And then they who remain, the rest of us. If you've ever read the Left Behind series by Tim LaHaye and some other man, I believe his name is Jenkins, or if you've ever seen any of their videos, that's what that's all about. You may have been driving around town and seen a bumper sticker on the back of the car. Something that says, in the event of rapture, this car will be unmanned. Or, I saw another one, when the rapture comes, I'm going through all your stuff. Or, another one, Jesus is coming, everybody look busy. Some people who have begun to mock it a little bit, can't say that I blame them. But there are a lot of people who believe that in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to vanish. And yes, that's probably the way it's going to happen when he returns. Because the Bible said so, but he's only going to come back one time. Not two more times. If there is to be two appearances of the Lord, do you not think that John would have given, been given instructions at the outset of Revelation, right here. There's only one more appearance of our Lord coming in triumph. One more resurrection of all peoples. If you remember what we read earlier in verse 10, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Well, it's been 2,000 years ago since he died on the cross. How is that going to happen? They have to be resurrected too. But I thought resurrection was a good thing. Let's look at the Bible. Let's look at our authority. Let's look at Scripture. Daniel chapter 12, all the way in the Old Testament. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, the resurrection was taught all the way in the Old Testament. But it sounds like it's not just the believers, but everyone's going to be resurrected. John 5.28, words of our Lord Jesus himself, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the, to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. When he returns again, it's judgment time. There's no more hope. 
C.S. Lewis paints the picture clearly. He says, when the author steps onto the stage, the play is over. That's what's going to happen. And quite frankly, I can't wait. Revelation 20, further into the book, beginning of verse 12. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, the death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. Behold, he is coming. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That's how this is fulfilled. Those who pierced him, those who put him on the cross, those who condemned him and killed him will look at him and wail because they will realize then above their pride, above their arrogance, above their rebellion, that they were wrong and they were in trouble. But it will be too late for repentance. Matthew 24. The Lord Jesus himself describes it. It's not going to be a secret rapture where somebody's car is rolling down the street and they're just gone and all of a sudden it goes all over the place. Everybody goes. In Matthew 24, he describes it something that is clearly seen. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the man be. Wherever the corpse is, there is the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken. Then will appear... In heaven, the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and glory. God, the Lord Jesus himself said, everyone's going to see this. It will be sudden, it will be quick, but everyone's going to see it, and everyone will know. He is coming in judgment. He is coming in vindication. What he says has been righteous all along. What they have said has been nothing but lies and deception of Satan and the serpent. John, in this letter of Revelation, has made it very clear that the triune God reveals glory, authority, power, justice, and judgment. He also reveals that the Son of God, the everlasting King, will return again. And after all of that, these first eight verses, he is talking about God's authority and the coming King and his vindication when he appears. After all of that, he finally gets down to revealing himself. The secretary is chosen. God chose John specifically to write this down. Put this in a letter that all may know. 
God does not want to be mysterious. He doesn't want to be veiled. He wants us to know. But it takes spiritual eyes and spiritual discernment to see. Verse 9, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Allow me to pause here and give a quick glimpse of John's resume or his circumvite or his CV. This John, this Apostle John, was part of the Lord's inner circle. Peter, James, and John, this was the John we're talking about. This was the John who was on the Mount of Transfiguration and saw his Lord speaking with Moses and Elijah as he was glorified before their eyes. John had become, after the Lord's death and his resurrection and ascension, God had become a leader and a scripture defines him as a pillar in the Jerusalem church. According to Galatians 2.9, he was one of the church leaders who authorized Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. It's a bit of a controversial legend because we don't have any bona fide hard evidence that this happened, but legend from uh, early church fathers write and tell us because of his preaching, John was tried, they tried to kill him, they tried to martyr him, they tried to boil him on oil. But somehow he miraculously survived it. So they couldn't kill him, they decided, well, let's just ban him to the forgotten place called Patmos. It was a prison island, it was a mining island for Rome. Let's send him there to a life of hard labor. So here is someone who has preached the gospel faithfully. He has been a leader in the church. He has been blessed and honored by the people within the church. He is arrested and attempted to be tortured. We don't know if there were any scars. We don't know. But he survived that and he's banished to a forgotten place you would think he would be discouraged. You would think he would be angry. You would think he would be miffed at what the Lord had done. But scripture describes him. He was in the spirit on the Lord's day. Do any of us know what that's like? In the spirit on the Lord's day. Does it mean he was running around like he was in speaking in tongues? No. Deeply in prayer, probably fasting, just communing with his Lord through the word and within his soul. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The blessing of God's presence is always with us. 
all of us, you and I, the blessing of his presence is always with us. The power of his spirit is nearest in the midst of suffering. The power of his spirit is nearest in the midst of suffering. You're going through some trial where you are going to be tempted to think that God has turned his back. He doesn't know what's going on. He is closer than you think. You need to turn your face and your heart toward him and weep and seek and pray. That's where you're going to find the doorway to getting into the spirit. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, most of you know this by heart. No temptation has taken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. He never tests you beyond what you are able, and some of us are not able to handle any more than just a bad cold or a mysterious illness, or a bad accident, or the loss of a home, or the loss of a loved one. You might think that's common for everybody, but for the believer, those kinds of things are supposed to get our attention to turn to him and pray. You want to find a way to escape that pain, that inconvenience, that fear, that doubt? During those trials, pray. Get in the spirit. That's what John was doing. During temptation and suffering, that's what John was doing. No one likes suffering. No one likes suffering. When I was a youngster and I would hear my preacher, my pastor, preach about suffering, I was frightened. I, Lord, I don't know if I can ever do anything like that. I don't know if I can ever stand anything like that. Lord, help me endure suffering. We usually try and avoid it. We don't like it. It's not fun. Stay away from it. It's like the rattlesnake you find in the corner of your garden. C.S. Lewis also wrote once, we shall draw near to God not by trying to avoid sufferings, but by accepting them and offering them to him. Throwing away all defensive armor. If our hearts need to be broken, and if he chooses suffering as a way in which they should break, so be it. Sometimes suffering is necessary because we don't have our eyes on him anyway. And if that's the way to get our eyes to turn to him, to seek him, to look for him, he's going to do it. Because if you recall the opening of the Ten Commandments in Scripture, our God is a jealous God. If your attention is somewhere else, and you're not willingly giving you, giving him 
your attention, he's going to find a way to get it. It means even taking away the very thing you love. John endured persecution and suffering. And his escape, his escape, he sought to be on the Spirit on the Lord's Day. James 1, 12 through 14, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God cannot be tempted by with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. See, we don't like suffering. We don't mind temptation, because temptation leads us to what we think is fun, a good release, a little bit of delight, a nice distraction, but it's rebellion. It's disobedience. It's unclean. It's not right. God has called you to be holy. You're supposed to be administering what is right and wrong in this world. How can you be faithful to that calling if you're indulged or engaged participating in the sin of this world. So we see God's vindication. We see how John has been introduced. He's introduced himself. And we find him in the spirit on the Lord's day. In verses 12 through 16, we see the author of the letters. Not John. He's just a secretary. He's writing down what God shows him and what God tells him. Verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in the furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. If you use your imagination in trying to imagine what's here, it's kind of a wonderful view. We need to be a little careful. We need to be a little careful because if we take literally, word for word, and we kind of imagine when John says, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, that's quite a tongue. But I think what John is saying here, that his words, when he spoke to me, pierced my heart and my soul and we don't usually respond that way to God's word we read it and eh, I don't get it but since he was already in the spirit since he was already in prayer since he was already the proper posture 
he was ready to receive the words of the Lord and they cut like a knife. Are we ever that way before him? Have you ever read the Bible? I know you've read it sometimes where you get this light shines from a verse. And you just see something, though you've read it many times before, it finally opens up to you and you understand it. I used to do that with Proverbs. I think the experience in life seems to open up the words of Proverbs to me, the wisdom that is there. And we see that again and again in our own lives, how the Spirit will open us, open up understanding to a scripture or a passage that has been kind of vague to us before. But let me ask you, have you ever read a scripture verse or a passage that is convicting, that causes pain, that really exposes too much of what you have hidden, secreted away in your soul, something you've protected that should not be there? Has that ever happened? then your soul has not been cut by the two-edged sword of God's word yet. I'm not saying it won't. It has not yet because it's supposed to. Hebrews 4 and 11, 4, 11 and 12 promises us that. This is not the first time the Lord has appeared this way. We look at Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. Daniel has seen the Lord Jesus glorified before his birth. Pre-existent evidence of Christ. A lot of people think that Jesus didn't exist until he was born of Mary. No, no, no. The Son of God is eternal. He only took on human flesh through Mary. Daniel 10, verse 6, his body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes were flaming torches, his arms and legs were like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. Sounds very similar to me. You can read again in Ezekiel 40, a similar kind of description of the Lord Jesus before the time he walked this earth. So Christ glorified had come to John. And John's only reasonable response, and it should be our only reasonable response, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, for I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive evermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things you have seen those that are and those that are to take place after this. John sees something more glorious than he had ever imagined. He sees his Lord glorified, risen, alive, and he falls to his face. I am, I am unworthy, Lord. I am nothing but a sinner. He humbles himself at the feet of his Lord. I fell at his feet as though dead, 
but he laid his right hand on me. God stoops, the Lord Jesus stoops down and touches him. Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. Write therefore the things you have seen, the things you have seen in the past, the things that are, and the things that are take place after this. Past, present, and future. We should be, as believers, in a posture, in an attitude, that moves us to seek his spirit, his place, his light, our obedience. He will one day return, and to this world who refuses to believe him and refuses to listen, he shall be vindicated, and everyone will know that he was right all along. And they will wail, they will weep, and they will cry. They will gnash their teeth, knowing, realizing that it's too late. God chose someone to be faithful in proclaiming this message. He chose John. You and I, he has chosen as his own We may not be as effective as John, but we need to be effective where we are. Why has he called us? Why has he saved you? How is he going to use you? Be faithful where you are. Seek his face. Seek his light. Seek to be in his spirit. Read and pray frequently. He is the author of the seven letters that he is going to send to the churches in Asia. We'll get into those next week. But our only reasonable response is to fall at his feet in humility and in penance and find his grace and his mercy. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word and its truth and its power. And we pray this day that you might speak to us. You would help us to be faithful. Help us to weep over our sin. Help us to suffer in the efforts of repentance. Sometimes repentance is not taken away from us, but it is left with us that we might struggle and strengthen our faith. Sometimes we cannot shed the sins that, so, that cling so tightly to us. Therefore, we are called to gain strength to handle these things. But in all of this, Lord, let us be faithful to you where we are as we grow in the knowledge and understanding and the wisdom of your truth and light. It is in the name of our Savior we pray. Amen.